I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to Startup Stories, the weekly show from the Financial Times in which I talk to entrepreneurs about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Sarah Murray's mobile alarm and tracking technology company faced an early setback when a government contract she'd been pinning her hopes on fell through. She told me the story. I started my first business when I was in management consulting. I was doing what I always did, which was basically build complicated spreadsheets. And I said to my boss, I can actually build some software that would mean that I don't have to build this spreadsheet every time. And I'll be able to just press go, go home and the work will be done overnight. So I always joke about starting my first business because I was lazy, but actually I was just trying to save myself some time. So I, I basically built some software that was used in pharmaceutical industry, which allowed big pharma companies to optimize their sales forces. And while I was doing that, that company is called Nina. It still exists. It's about 400 people headquartered in New York, and it's owned by one of the large media agency groups. I had a customer that was Norwich Union, and it was the late 90s. And I was working with some of these big companies to optimize their total marketing investment. So I went and presented some Norwich Union board and said, basically, to reduce your costs of operating, you're going to have to get online. And that was very new. In those days, insurance companies didn't even really have websites. But I said that they would need to spend about £6 million marketing that website in that first year in 1998. And they wouldn't get a return from that money for probably eight or nine years. So rather than present that as a solution to them, I suggested that they spend that £6 million together with five other insurance companies. So they just spend £1 million each and create a market which would be a benefit for consumers to be able to get more information from the same place. But transparent pricing, which the industry wasn't very keen on. Anyway, Norwich Union said, don't be ridiculous, we can't work with our competition. So they didn't want to do it. So I started that just as a little thing on the side from my then company. And that evolved into Confuse.com. So I, I built that company over about four years and became a sort of leader in that space. Other people started to enter the space. And uh, I found myself at dinner parties with people saying to me, where can I get my car insurance from? And I thought, well, this isn't really working for me. I have to get out of this game. So I started looking around. And at the same time, I met Admiral, who were interested in the space and weren't on the website yet and only wanted to go direct. So they ended up basically buying the company. So I found myself at the beginning of my 30s, twiddling my thumbs, thinking, "Okay, now I've retired, I ought to be playing golf or something. But the trouble with that was none of my friends were playing golf. They were all still really working. And so I was a little bit bored. So I started thinking about what to do next. And about six months later, came up with the idea for Buddy, which is my now business, which I've been doing now for more than 10 years. When my daughter was very small, I'd been in a supermarket, done what many parents do, turn round and my daughter wasn't there. And that sort of heart stopping moment, you normally shout them and they reappear. Of course, shouted her and she didn't reappear. I ran screaming around the shop and very fortunately found her in a few minutes. But that incredible adrenaline rush you get at that moment the total fear really made me think and I started thinking why can't I give her something which means whenever I need to find her I can find her 
So I thought, well, the Americans will have invented it. So I went off to buy one and I couldn't find one. So I decided to make one. And that's how Buddy started. But it's also pivoted as a business. So it has. Despite what investors say, and you must stick to a business plan, it's not true at all. In fact, you build a business plan really to show investors that you can A, build a business plan, but B, have thought about the market and how much money you might need to get into that market. So I had a business plan and I raised a bit of money. I got external investors. I think that's a really valuable thing to do because you have people then questioning the decisions that you're making. You tend to get as an entrepreneur, you're so driven and so on a single track. You need other people to step in and say, well, hang on, have you thought about X or Y? And you need to respect those people so that you listen to that. So I had a business plan which was largely about building devices and selling them to mums to know where their children were. But my business plan also said that this device might be used in all kinds of other markets. So it might be used for finding where anyone who's missing might be. But one of those markets, which is the justice market, where we're managing offenders in the community, was a market that I didn't really contemplate because the very big players were in it. It was government procured and I assumed they'd have sort of military grade technology. And it was only many years later that I discovered that, in fact, the technology that was provided by those big companies was, in fact, extremely backward and, and it still is extremely backward. And that, you know, that created horror stories in the future and very difficult times for my business. But we ended up getting into that market. And that's now about 90 percent of the work that we do currently around the world. Tell me about the horror stories. So the horror stories really came out of addressing government procurement in the UK. I mean, everybody's pretty clear now, but it wasn't so clear to me at the time how difficult it is for small businesses to win large government contracts in this country. And it isn't true in any other country in the world, luckily. So we can actually go and win those big contracts around the world and do. But in the UK, you butt against a system that makes it very difficult. So in 2012, 2013, we were trying to win a contract from the Ministry of Justice, and that all basically went pear-shaped. So we ended up on the front page of the Daily Mail. The headline was, MOJ, we're not your buddy, when we fell out with the Ministry of Justice. What is it that was the issue? Why couldn't they take a punt on you? So they did actually announce us preferred bidder, which was an incredible step. We were really tiny and there were some civil servants who were prepared to take that risk on a very small company because our technology was so good. So I think they tried, but I think it's very difficult. There are a lot of T's that need to be crossed and I's that need to be dotted, which are really around the financial capability of the business that you're giving a contract to. You know, if you're a government and you're spending very large amounts of money, you give the contract to a company that then falls over. You've got the issue that we have with Carillion now. The Carillion issue shows that it's true with even very large companies, but it's just much more expected of smaller companies. And I suppose if we're the company that's got great technology and we fall over, then government's left with no technology that can do the job that is supposed to be done. Now, I have made suggestions to government many times about how those things can be fixed, but it's very hard to make change. Buddy is a very different business to previous ones, going into hardware. Does this say something about gaining confidence if you start more businesses That's an interesting question. I don't think you could start a business making hardware. I know a lot of people try to do that. But to start a business that you really want to grow making hardware takes an awful lot of money. And to either have that money or to raise that money, you need to have some track record. You make a lot of mistakes in starting any business. It's just necessary to make those mistakes. Otherwise, you're really not pushing any boundaries. And in hardware specifically, you make more mistakes because there are so many things that can go wrong. So I wouldn't recommend anyone start a hardware company as their first business. But once you've done it, if you build really good hardware, then you've got a really great barrier to entry. Was it there for a sort of ambition or thought that you do something with something physical Um, when you were starting out? 
Interestingly, as you raise that question, it reminds me that it was, but I never really thought of it like that. My previous businesses were all the type of technologies that internet is perfect for. There are no goods to be moved. It's sort of replacing paper. And I always wanted to see somebody out with some product of mine. I've always loved sort of food and wine and things like that, where you can pick up a bottle and say, this is a great bottle of wine. I'd love to have made that bottle of wine. So to be able to make hardware meant that I had the hope of one day seeing a child get onto the tube with a buddy on it, and that would have made me feel very good. You're still building this, but were there particular lucky breaks? People say that the harder you work, the more luck you get, and there's a lot of truth in that. So in some ways you can create your own luck, but basically you need to keep your business alive until the luck happens, and the luck will come along. It will happen to everybody, but very often your business has died because it ran out of cash before that. So it's about building a really good solid foundation that enables you to stay and grow very slowly so when opportunities arrive that you can take those opportunities. And that's happened to me many times. There have been good things and bad things, and that's the necessary part of running a business. And people always say, what are the worst things? Well, they happen every day. I mean, you're literally firefighting every day, but also looking at opportunities every day. And it's the combination of those that makes being an entrepreneur very exciting. Probably the biggest turning point for me has been having really good customers who paid on time or in some cases with our customers early who were so committed to our product and so love it that they would go out and shout about it to other customers and that then makes your business take on its own momentum. What did you do when a big potential client like the MOJ knocks you back? You could very easily just say I can't do this anymore it's too hard and either walk away or sell the business and I think a lot of certainly smaller English or British companies would sell at that point because obviously there were big American companies who were desperate to own us and come in and then win those contracts funnily enough. But I'm very determined. I was absolutely determined to overcome this until one day showed the MOJ that we were the best company and that they would want to work with us and I hope one day we will get there. Can you describe where you were when you found out that and the the emotions going through you? I can. It was terrible because we'd worked so hard for so long and spent so much money trying to deliver that one single contract. We'd been preferred bidder for quite a long time and we got a call saying, you need to come in and meet the minister. So I actually thought this was the minister going to say, congratulations, this is going to happen now. So I actually asked a couple of my team who'd spent the most time and we'd worked day and night literally delivering the work for this contract. And there was one weekend where we worked until eight o'clock in the morning on Saturday night. So we worked till eight o'clock on Sunday morning, went to bed for an hour and got up and carried on working on it. It was that kind of level of work. So we went in front of the minister and he sat across the table and basically said, we can't work with you. We don't believe that you can really deliver the technology we need. And to me, it was such a hit. It was a massive blow. The last thing you were expecting. Yeah. I just couldn't understand it. It just didn't make any sense. There we were. We were a British company designing and manufacturing British product. It was the best products available to anyone in the world. We'd won on price. so We'd priced it lower than anybody else. We had all of the capabilities to really deliver something fantastic and just couldn't understand it. And I find that very difficult. I understand there are politics at play, but I've never been one to get politics and entrepreneurs generally don't. So my reaction to that was, what a huge blow. I obviously reeled from that for a day or two, but then picked up the pieces and said, right, we're going to go and attack the rest of the world. And as a result, 90% of our business is now overseas. And we work with the ministries of justice in many other nations. We have the biggest contract in Latin America. We have the biggest contract in Asia. And hopefully we'll have the biggest contract in North America soon. Can you explain how you use those 
emotions. Presumably that is a key part to turning a problem into a solution. Yeah, that's quite a difficult question because it's just my nature. But I think what it makes you do is really focus on what is it we're about? What are we delivering here? And who will really appreciate it? And I suppose just that time spent thinking about what am I doing and where do I need to take it is something you don't generally focus on because you're so busy answering customers, dealing with staff, working out plans, making sure you've got finances, just the million things that you need to do. You don't really answer that single question, what are we doing here? When you came out of that meeting, you had to think, well, we've got to go to someone else. Who was the other person you went to? So we actually went first to Australia and we started winning contracts over there. So our biggest competitor in the space is 3M, which is a 75 billion market cap company. And we said, well, well, let's go and steal some customers. So we attacked some of the bids where they were incumbents and we demonstrated to those customers that we were better and started to win them. Was it about connection set? Um, Well, British companies do very well in the Commonwealth, so... If you look at the countries in the Commonwealth that have are already using products around your type of product, then that's a fairly easy entry because you can talk to them. They understand the way you operate. We have the same sort of values and systems, generally very similar law. So you know that you're not getting into the kind of problems that you might get if you got into countries in South America or Africa, for example, where you might not get paid. There are rules at play that you don't understand. The way people operate may appear very similar but actually isn't behind the scenes whereas Canada some bits of Asia like Malaysia Australia New Zealand they operate very much in the same way that we do and the values are the same. Were there connections in terms of staff in in Australia to get people out Um, there? No so we've been operating in Australia now for almost five years and we finally have one person feet on the ground in Australia so we did it all from the UK We just answered RFPs, so requests for proposals. We put in proposals that were sometimes higher price than they said they even had budget for, but just demonstrating that this stuff could be done. I remember we were approached by a Department of Corrections from down there who had been looking for really good location technology for many years and they rang us up and said, can you come and present this stuff? And we said, actually, we're a very small company and we'll just send you one because it's not really worth us heading over there unless you're going to buy something. So they were astounded because nobody ever sent them one. Our technology in our industry doesn't work out of the box typically. Anyway, we just sent them one. They took it out of the box and it worked, so they were gobsmacked. So they came to see us and a team of them turned up and came and visited our tiny little offices. And six weeks later, we went live over there. Where are you now with Buddy and what's next? Buddy is about 80 people. We have offices now in Australia, UK and US. We operate and have customers on five continents with some very big contracts We are a member of the Prime Minister's Future 50 programme, so in the 50 fastest growing tech companies, I'm quite good at finding other things to invest in, which means that our profits are always very low. But that then turns into significant growth. So we're still very ambitious about growing the business and trying to double it every year. And where next is really attacking consumer markets. So we have now a really fantastic solution for if you have an elderly parent or grandparent who lives alone and they're concerned about a fall Historically, they've had to wear a big white plastic box around the neck, which is just horrible and no one wants to wear it. So nobody does wear them. And we've converted that into a solution, which is something that you happily wear, which is a very cool wristband. It looks a bit like a Fitbit and it talks to your phone. And so I want to see that actually used on all of those continents where we're working. I asked John Mullins of London Business School to comment on Sarah's experience 
plan A almost never works, but most of the time there's some alteration in the path that you need to make. And we now call that a pivot, of course, in the entrepreneurial world. And so you say, well, gee, that wasn't maybe the right customer, but there's this other customer, just as Sarah did, starting out to find a, a kid in a supermarket and ending up tracking offenders uh, who've been released from jail. Well, that's a little different customer segment. I think you make it happen by really understanding your customer along the way and what your customer wants and needs. Sarah is a person who does that instinctively and does that very well. And I think quickly she discovered that it was going to be really difficult to attack this consumer market to help find lost kids. Or they're not really lost, but they've strayed just a bit. But then she saw that the same technology and the same kind of product could serve a very different need for a very different customer. And so she then had to understand that customer as well. And so it always takes some time. And she discovered actually that serving that customer in the UK didn't work very well. But if she went overseas, it worked way better. And presumably part of the problem is how long you survive before you've identified that plan B. Yeah, that's always a challenge. And that's one reason why it's appropriate not to build too much before you really try to go to market. In fact, I advise entrepreneurs to build a prototype that's enough to show what you can do, but that really isn't necessarily optimized for a particular use. And you go to the customer, especially in B2B situations, and you say, look, here's what my technology can do. Now, to get it to do what you need to do, I need to do these two or three steps. The vast majority of entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs, never raise any venture capital. And so the question becomes, well, then how did they finance their business? Well, they did it with their customers' money. And often, if you find a big enough customer problem, like Sarah found in the prison setting, and you have a solution to that problem that's a better solution than those customers have, they will, and if it's a compelling problem, they will pay you to solve that problem. And in fact, they did for Sarah. So does Sarah think there's a lesson in her story to pass on to other entrepreneurs? Absolutely. So when I started in business, there was no email. You know, when I was at university, you didn't email, you wrote letters. And the World Wide Web was really just being thought about. So now you've got the whole world as your oyster. If you're having problems getting a customer here, there will be markets where it's an awful lot easier to get customers. So, for example, if you're in the healthcare market, the Canadians have a very simple and laid down healthcare payment system, which means that you can approach a market like that knowing how to get paid from the beginning. Whereas if you're in the UK, you're trying to sell to the NHS, it's a total web. So once you've built your product, you know that people will really want it. Don't necessarily assume your home market. Look at where there might be other markets that might be easier to get to. And it's very simple. You just find out who it is you need to talk to and send them information. And those who are interested in it will pick it up and run with it, which might surprise you where they come from. And you never give up who have been the sort of key mentors, supports in, in that? Well, there's a never give up and there's never give up. So if you've got a good product that you could bring, even if you can't sell it at a reasonable price now, you could get to a reasonable price with a what would be a sensible volume. You just haven't managed to finish making that product or find that first customer, then you should never give up. You have to keep pushing it. And once you've shown your product to a few people, you'll immediately know whether or not there's some traction or potential traction there. There's so many times people come up to me and they say, I've got a great idea. And I say, what is it? And they say, well, I can't tell you. 
And I think, well, that's just silly. I tell everybody my idea. I don't believe anyone's going to run off with it. And if they do, it just proves it was a really great idea. I've got lots of other ideas. But actually what happens is, well, particularly in this country, there are a lot of naysayers. So you present your idea and lots of people say, oh, that won't work. This is why that won't work. And you have to take that as read, but also say, well, actually, I think it will. And you, you get the I think it will by asking lots and lots of people. And for the great idea, people start saying, oh, well, that must exist. And I can't believe that that doesn't exist. And that's the idea that you take. So the never give up is when you find that where people say, well, it must exist or that would be great. That's the idea you never give up on. You just keep pushing it. Next week, we talk to Peter Mulman, the Danish entrepreneur behind the business review website Trustpilot. Don't forget, you can catch up on previous episodes of Startup Stories if you visit our special page, ft.com forward slash startup. Goodbye and thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.